just want to say welcome to Hillside, um, especially if you're new with us, if this is your first time, just an extra special welcome to you. Um, hope you guys are having a good holiday weekend, a good 4th of July weekend, and uh, I want to interrupt that today to talk about work. And so uh, maybe you're nudging, uh, elbowing your partner, like I told you we should have skipped today. Uh, it's a holiday weekend, that would have been fine, and now we're going to hear about work. In 1930, one economist predicted that by the 21st century, we would have a 15-hour work week and basically have a five-day weekend. With the advancements of you know, time-saving technologies that were happening, uh, that seemed reasonable. I have a dishwasher. It washes my dishes. It saves me time. But does it really? I don't know. Um, in 1967, one Senate subcommittee was told that by 1985, the average American would work only 22 hours a week, but catch this, for only 27 weeks per year. Sounds nice, right? Uh, the most recent survey I could find, and the most recent Gallup survey, uh, was a few years old, but it said most full-time workers at a full-time, you know, 40-hour-a-week job, on average, work 47 hours per week. 21% of those actually worked 50 to 59 hours a week. And then 18% of the real overachievers uh, worked 60 hours plus per week. So despite all of that time-saving technology and innovation, uh, most of us statistically are, are working more than full-time year-round. You know, maybe we take a week off here or there in the summer for a vacation, but for the most part, most of us are working more than full-time, we'll say 50 weeks a year. And this survey didn't include include, you know, what we've experienced over the last couple years of what you might call the Zoom boom, right, where now you can work with a laptop and Wi-Fi from anywhere, which means most of us that do that work from our bed with our pajamas still on. Uh, maybe up top we have a tie or look presentable, but down below we still got our jammy pants on. Um, but while it offered more flexibility, now we have all our work uh, in-house, you know, in our house, and data shows that m people are actually working even more now because, you know, m maybe where they would take a weekend off, well, now their laptop's right there. Is it that big of a deal to send a reply to this email? So we're the statistics would probably say we're even working more than 47 hours per week now, a time that we would have taken off. Now it's just too easy, too slippery, to get back into working even from our home. And so, on average, you'll spend about, I don't mean to depress you, uh, but you'll spend about 90,000 hours of your life working. It's about a third of your life. But this will make you happy. You'll spend about a third of your life sleeping, okay? So it's like a good give and take. And, we, and when I'm talking about work, I want to just make it clear, that includes all of us, okay? Those of us that are retired, we don't, aren't maybe getting, doing paid work, uh, maybe even some of us that are kids, we're still working, we're, we're, we have chores, whatever that may be, maybe it's our school work, if we're college students, grad students, maybe it's even simple work around our house, we all have things we're working towards, whether paid, unpaid, whether we're volunteering in children's ministry, whatever it may be. And that's so much of our time dedicated to that. We have to ask the question, you know, are these in vain? Do my 
decades of work matter beyond making a paycheck, or is that it? Making a paycheck's good. Do these ordinary things matter to God? Do they matter in the kingdom? Is there a way to work and work hard without it becoming my identity, without it consuming me? And so today I want to look at a psalm that I think will answer some of those questions for us. We are starting a new series, um, as you can see, the graphic called Songs of Summer. Uh, We'll be in this for the most part for the rest of the summer, just looking at various psalms in the Bible. And the psalms are these types of Hebrew poetry that are meant to be sung. This specific one that we'll be in today is, it might say in your Bible, a, a psalm of ascent or a song of ascent. Things that were sung as the people of God were on their way to worship. And so I want to look at Psalm 127, and we'll just be in verses 1 and 2 this morning, and it's, it says this, verse 1, unless the Lord builds a house, its builders labor over it in vain. Unless the Lord watches over a city, the watchman stays alert in vain. Verse 2, in vain you get up early and stay up late, working hard to have enough food. Yes, he gives sleep to the one he loves. And so this morning, I want to just do three simple things. I want to make three simple points. One, our work depends on God. Two, our work matters to God. And three, our work rests in God. So first, our work depends on God. Have you ever done anything in vain? Have you ever done anything that you worked super hard at, but in the end, unfortunately, for whatever reason, uh, it didn't really matter? There's nothing more gut-wrenching than that. I know, I remember when I was in high school, I was in a gym class, uh, and for that day, we were going to run on the trails behind our high school. There were some woods behind our school and and these cross-country ski trails, and so we were actually going to run them. We had to run you know, a mile and a half uh, for class that day. And I, you know, upped the ante a little bit, and I said to my teacher, hey, if, what if I ran it backwards? Could I skip class tomorrow? You know, thinking there's no way he's going to go for it. But in the end, he did. He said, yeah, if you run a mile and a half backwards, well, that's, uh, you don't have to come to class tomorrow. So I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, this is amazing. This is my chance. You know, I get to leave school early tomorrow because it was my last class of the day. And so I was determined. And so I set out, you know, running backwards, and I don't know if you ever tried that. Running's hard enough as it is, let's be honest. Running backwards is so stupid. Uh, it's, <laughs> the moving is very difficult, but the hardest part is, like, trying to, t- you know, tweak your neck so that you make sure you don't run into a tree or a deer or something or uh, your teacher. And so, but I was so determined, and I, uh, you know, I get partway through, and I'm just like, it just is horrible. And, but, I, but I've already made, you know, this much of a commitment. I'm like, I can't quit now. So then I get to, you know, like two-thirds of the way through. I'm like, okay, I did a mile. I just need to do a half a mile, and then I don't have to come to class tomorrow. And so I push through. You know, I wasn't making probably very good time, but eventually I run all the way back to the front doors of our school where that was like the finish line for the day. I go up to the, the weight room, and I say to my teacher, hey, Cal, I, I did it. And, you know, these friends of mine can verify. I, I promise I really did it. And then he said, okay, well, you don't have to come to class tomorrow. And I said, this is amazing. This is the best teacher I've ever had. But then it dawned on me, we didn't even have school tomorrow. (laughs) 
didn't have class, let alone, we didn't have school, and it was a you know holiday or whatever, so I was caught off guard, and I just realized I had done all of that for nothing. You know, maybe I, I burned some calories, so like, well, give me that. But it was horrible, and there's all this hard work, and in the end, it didn't count for anything. And I think that's what this psalm is getting at. Verse 1, when it says, unless the Lord builds a house, its builders labor over it in vain. Unless the Lord watches over a city, the watchman stays alert in vain. It's saying if God isn't ultimately the one building the house or watching over the city, then we're hopeless. We're hopeless to produce anything that's lasting, anything that's meaningful, anything that is satisfying. And all of us, we want to know that our work matters, that what we're doing counts for something. Whether you're a med student, whether you're a a farmer, whether you're a stay-at-home parent, whether you're retired, whatever it may be, we want to know that we're contributing something to the greater good. We want to know that what I'm doing counts, that it benefits people, that it matters to God. Otherwise, it's done in vain. And if there is no reality of God controlling the outcomes and results of what, my, of what I'm doing, then, then I'm hopeless because then it's all up to chance. Is this business, you know, I'm spending my life building, is this going to last? Will it live beyond me? Will, will the hours I put in at my job matter? And this really protects us from having a prideful view of our accomplishments. They're saying it all depends on God. None of us are the self-made whatever, self-made millionaire. If you're a millionaire, I'm happy for you. Um, But it prevents us from becoming prideful of our own achievements. Like, look at what I have done. It's saying without God as the ultimate builder, we're just spinning our wheels. Think about it this way. Say you wanted to start a business, and you could do everything perfectly right. Cross all the T's, dot all the I's, do everything as well as you possibly could and still fail. You have no control over people buying your products or hiring out your services. The results are totally out of our control. We're fully dependent on God. Sometimes we have this illusion of control that's really not there. And this is true not of just our, you know, like our career, our, our work as in a career, but it's also true of our work spiritually, the ministry that we're all called to in this world. Have you ever noticed you can't force others to grow faster than God allows? Like you've wanted something for them more than they've wanted it? We can't force others to believe in the gospel no matter how good your evangelism is? You might say things just so perfectly, be very winsome, and in the end, they reject it. Because we have no control over the heart, over the results. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3 about this. They're arguing about uh, which, basically which camp they belong to, whether of Paul or Apollos, and he says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So then, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. So 
So whether in work, whether in church, in everything we do, our results are so dependent on God. Our success is so dependent on God. But at the same time, this is not a call to idleness or laziness. It's a mistake to think, you know, I'm trusting in God. That, so because of that, I'm not going to work. I'm not going to do anything because we're, quote, trusting in God. Christians, we are called to be hard workers, diligent, just not workaholics and just not prideful workers. We're to be joyful diligent people who work unto the Lord no matter what we're doing, no matter what type of work it is. So we're not called to laziness because it's in vain. Imagine a farmer who, you know, who's told like, oh, you know, if you plant the seed, well, it's kind of all in vain unless God sends the rain. True, but it would be just ridiculous if that farmer interpreted that to mean, oh, I guess I shouldn't plant any seeds at all because after all, it's all up to the rain. No, we're called in full dependence on God in our work. But that does not give us a license to laziness or being idle. Instead, we work diligently but dependently. So first, our work depends on God. Secondly, though, our work matters to God. Our work matters to God. Have you ever considered or pondered this, how God instituted work before the fall, before sin entered the world? Have you ever wondered, well, what does that mean? Or have you ever wondered or considered how, uh, and again, I hope this doesn't depress you, but after we explain it a little bit, maybe it won't. In the new heavens and the new earth, work still exists. So work is pre-fall in the Garden of Eden, and work is post-return of Christ. So God has ordained work as something good and beneficial. In Isaiah 65, speaking of the new heavens and the new earth, it says this, in case, you know, you're like, I don't really believe you. Uh, One, 21, people will build houses and live in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and others live in them. They will not plant and others eat. For my people's lives will be like the lifetime of a tree. My chosen ones will fully enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor without success. So work is instituted as good. And the only reason we are hardship, uh, experiencing hardship and work and these thorns and thistles in our work is because of the distortion of sin in this world. And notice how God doesn't ask the builder to completely stop building. God doesn't ask the watchman to forever give up his post because what's any of it matter? Our work matters greatly to God. God is the one ultimately doing the work, yet he invites us to be his hands who do it. Because I, you know, it's tempting to read that psalm and be like, well, hey, you know, if God's building a house, why do I have to build the house? Like, he's probably so much better at building a house than me. If he's the one watching over the city, why why does he need a watchman? Because God does his work through ordinary people like you and me. We are the means through which God accomplishes his work in this world. Nobody understood this and understood the dignity of work as well as Martin Luther. And this was in a time when the only important work spiritually was that of monks and nuns and priests. Like if you, the only work that really was sacred was that of ministry. 
of those in the ministry. And he broke down the sacred secular divide saying all ethical work done unto the Lord is sacred. And then as we'll see, he talks about it being God working under the masks of people. I have a couple quotes. One here, he says, God could easily give you grain and fruit without your plowing and planting. But he does not want to do so. What else is all our work to God, whether in the field, in the garden, in the city, in the house, in war, in government, but just such a child's performance by which he wants to give gifts in the fields, at home, and everywhere else. These are the masks of God behind which he wants to remain concealed and do all things. Because often we make, you know, kind of two unhelpful conclusions. We kind of fall off either side of the horse about the relationship between well, God's control and then kind of what we do. And this psalm pulverizes those conclusions. You know, because we can either think, okay, God does everything and we do nothing. So we end up in laziness. Or we can think, well, we do everything and God, you know, is not really, he's like out there somewhere but he's not controlling everything, which is, leads to pride. You know, when I picked this psalm, I immediately thought of like, oh, okay, I have a really good illustration for that. And I thought, uh, you know, how I mow the lawn and then my three-year-old helps me. And so I have, you know, a real lawnmower. It's electric, but it's still real. Um, but my son has a plastic one. Okay, I used to, you know, blow bubbles and stuff, but then he threw a bunch of dirt in it. So, um, but, and I was thinking, oh yeah, okay, it's kind of like how Grayson and I mow the lawn. Like, I'm really the one mowing, and he's just kind of like cutely, you know, like walking his little plastic toy mower. But as I thought about it more, I said, well, that's actually kind of misleading. That's not totally accurate, because his mower doesn't have a blade. So he's not actually doing any of the cutting. But us, we actually do accomplish things. We actually do cut the grass even though the results are ultimately up to God. It's not that we can't accomplish anything. It's that without God, we can't accomplish anything. God is the key. It's not that we don't actually do anything in this world. It's that without him, it's meaningless. It's done in vain. Because he has given us dominion over creation to build, to create, to cultivate the earth. And we need God, he doesn't need us, but he graciously, lovingly chooses to use us to accomplish his purposes in this world. Another quote from Luther, he's actually uh, doing a sermon on a different psalm, but he says this, make the bars and gates, not like a drinking bar, but like a, you know, iron bar, uh, and let him fasten them. Labor and let him give the fruits. Govern and let him give his blessing. Fight and let him give the victory. Preach and let him win hearts. Take a husband or a wife and let him produce the children. Eat and drink and let him nourish and strengthen you. And so on. In all our doings, he is to work through us. And he alone shall have the glory from it. So no matter what form your work takes, it matters to God. And you can do it for the glory of God. No matter if you're a student, a volunteer, a farmer, a professor, a business person, a stay-at-home parent, 
your work matters to God. Lastly, so our work depends on God, our work matters to God, and lastly, our work rests in God. And I think I'll spend the most time on this section. Because how many of us go to bed at night thinking, oh, yeah, I got everything done I wanted to. Every single thing I wanted to get done, every house project, like cleaned up everything at the house, all my work tasks, responded to every email, every text, right? Got the lawn mowed and the garage cleaned. No, none of us, that's not reality for us. There's always more to do, always more to get done, and there always will be. Many of us just can't stop working. Even when we maybe aren't on the clock, technically, because maybe we're obsessed with things like accomplishment or obsessed with accumulation. If we were to raise hands in here, and you uh, don't have to, uh, I prefer if you didn't, uh, how many of us would say we actually do take a full, real day off from working each week? How many of us would actually be able to honestly say we keep a Sabbath day of rest, to rest, to delight in God, to be rejuvenated, to do things that bring us life, to rest from our work. Now, I don't know, but I imagine a lot of us probably don't. Or a lot of us really struggle to do that because there's always more to do. And we always feel like everything's on our shoulders. Everything depends on us. And the reality is we will eventually die with things still on the to-do list that we were never able to get around to doing. Verse 2 of this psalm says this, In vain you get up early and stay up late, working hard to have enough food. Yes, he gives sleep to the one he loves. I'm reading out of the CSB, Christian Standard Bible version, uh, but the ESV translates it this way. It says, uh, eating the bread of anxious toil. Anxious toil. This is when we have put our hours in that God has called us to. We've done the work that God has called us to do. But now we are going above and beyond doing things that God has never called you to do. Just because we, ha- we, we can't stop. I was just talking to uh, Greg Hansen out in the lobby this morning. I don't know where you are, somewhere around. Oh, hey, Greg. Um, but he was just talking about how in our world, we were so, or in our society, we're so obsessed with this hustle culture where we just can't stop. We just can't get ourselves to stop. We always are constantly busying with more and more and more and more, more work, more accomplishments, more accumulation. Anxiously toiling to accumulate more and more because we don't know when to stop. When is enough? We don't trust. Is there ever going to be enough bread? So now we're eating the bread of anxious toil as the ESV translates it. You know, and and I don't think the scriptures are putting boundaries on like when you can start work in the morning and when you have to stop at night. No, but it's a heart posture of anxiously toiling because we are not trusting God or we're finding identity in it or we're just obsessed with accumulation. And this this spoke to me in a a real way when I was studying this 
And I remember at a time when, when my wife and I, we had bought our first house. Okay, and uh, I was working a full-time job. We had a, a new baby who didn't like to sleep. Uh, so we were, you know, pretty spent. And we were gone for a weekend. And uh, when we came back, our house had flooded, like a pipe leaked or whatever. And so uh, the carpet was all torn up and there's water everywhere. And, uh, you know, it's your first house, so it's like any little thing just stresses you out like crazy because you don't know how to do anything. Uh, end up not being a huge deal, but at the time was very overwhelming. Um, and so we had, you know, done the claim and stuff with our insurance and figured out how much it was going to cost to replace it. And he's, you know, the insurance agent said, here's the amount of money you guys will get. You know, if you want to, you, can, you could do it on your own if you, if you wanted to. And then I think, oh. I could save several thousand dollars, or I could make several thousand dollars doing this. And so I had never laid flooring. I had never done anything. Um, but I think this is going to be a really good idea to help us kind of get ahead. And so I started tearing out the carpet, never done that, uh, made it way harder than it had to be. Uh, and then we get these, you know, luxury vinyl plank floorings. Uh, you guys know what those are. And so I had never done that, barely used a skill saw ever in my life. And started laying these floors, and they turned out pretty good, I'll just say that, but point being, I was, I was continually, you know, just so stressed out, we're living in a hotel, I'm working, we have a kid, and now I'm, I've gone into this place of something that I don't think God even called me to do. I had, I, I was getting partway through, and I was listening to this podcast, and I finally just broke down in tears, because it finally hit me. I realized my heart posture in it. I was anxiously toiling and destroying myself when I literally have, I was given the money to hire somebody else to do this. And, but my heart said, I think I have to do this because I don't trust there's going to be enough money when I need it after. This is my chance to, to get ahead. And there's, of course, nothing wrong with doing your own, you know, uh, work on your house or anything like that. But for me, the heart posture was one, I don't trust God to provide when I need it. Here's my chance to get a little bit ahead. And now I'm doing work and, and so stressed out and our family's stressed out when I had the money to do it. And it, was, and it wasn't, it's because I don't, I didn't trust God. I didn't trust God to provide. That was for me, the heart posture behind it. And I think that's what it looks like to anxiously toil. Okay, we're, we're called to, to toil and work, but this anxious heart posture that lacks trust in God, where we just can't stop because we don't trust. But with so many things to do, how do we rest? With so many things that seem to depend on us, how can we rest? How can we live this out? God gives sleep to the one he loves. Listen to this story in Mark 4, and starting in verse 35, says this. On that day when evening had come, he, Jesus, told them, let's cross over to the other side of the sea. So they left the crowd and took him along since he was in the boat. And other boats were with him. A great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking over the boat, so the boat was already being swamped. He was in the stern, Jesus, sleeping on a cushion, on the cushion. So they woke him up and said to him, Teacher, don't you care that we're going to die? So he got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, 
Silence, be still. The wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And then he said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And sometimes, you know, I used to kind of read this as, not that Jesus was being lazy, but just like, oh, Jesus is so chill, right? And, but I realized he had just got done working all day. He had just got done teaching all day, which was his work at that time. And now he's actually embodying this psalm that God gives rest to the one he loves. He's not freaking out. Most of us would be. Most of us are those disciples that are just freaking out like, God, don't you care? God, where are you? Are you going to take care of us? But through it all, Jesus is able to rest and sleep, trusting in the Father. If we think everything depends on us alone, how could we ever rest? We can't. If we think everything is ultimately up to us, no way we can rest. We'll be anxiously toiling in our sleep, thinking about all the things we got to get done. How's this going to work? How's this going to work? How am I going to do that? Lack of rest comes from a lack of trust. It's only when we realize our work is ultimately dependent on God and not on us that we can find soul-level rest. And the psalm says God, give re- God gives rests, rests. God gives rest to the ones he loves. Is that exclusive? I mean, like, I know a lot of unbelievers that can take a really good nap. You know, like, is that exclusive? And if so, how? And I think it's actually very practical if we think about it. So, for example, if you're an atheist, maybe you don't believe there's any God at all. Well, you have to believe that all of your results are fully up to you or chance. Everything's dependent on you. So as soon as you start resting, you suffer. Or if you're in a works-based religion, then you can't rest because you have to constantly be asking yourself, am I doing enough? Am I doing enough good? Am I doing enough in the community? Am I serving enough? Right, you got to get those balance of the scale, right? Or, which I think is very common in our life today, if work is your identity, then you have to keep building more and more because otherwise your image will suffer. Right? If it's our identity, well, when work is a success, then I'm a success. Goes to my head. But if work, if my work fails, then I'm a failure. And it goes to my heart. I read an article this week by a guy named Derek Thompson. He wrote an article in The Atlantic called The Religion of Workism is Making Americans Miserable. With a title like that, I had to read it. Uh, But he said this, The decline of traditional faith in America has coincided with an explosion of new atheisms. Some people worship beauty, some worship political identities, and others worship their children. But everybody worships something, and workism is among the most potent of the new religions competing for congregants. What is workism? It is the belief that work is not only necessary to economic production, but also the centerpiece of one's identity and life's purpose. So now work is no longer just a way 
to put food on the table for your family or put a roof over your head, nor a way to contribute good to society. It's who you are. It's become an identity. So results of our work become a direct correlation of our worth. And we can't stop working in life because our life is, is to meet, to strive to meet others' expectations of us. When what we do now becomes who we are. Right? How many of us, uh, maybe some of you don't have Instagram, but in Instagram, people are, are now forced to kind of boil down what they do and into how many different characters. You know, some, some of us might put a nice, cute little quote in our Instagram bio, but many of us, we're trying to, like, figure out, ah, who am, like, who am I? Do I put, okay, I'm a pastor, I'm a dad, you know, uh, dad bod or whatever. Uh, but so many of us have to, we're trying to boil down our identities, and, and most people end up putting what they do as who they are. I'm a pastor, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm a farmer, I'm whatever. And so we live in this culture, at least uh, us young people that are on social media, where we become obsessed with our identity, and our identity is our work. But in the uniqueness of Christianity, we can rest because although God uses us for his work, he is the one ultimately in control of all the results. And we rest in the finished work of Christ who settled that scorecard for us. So we don't have to constantly be wondering, am I doing enough? Am I doing enough? Am I doing enough? And we don't have to get our identity from our successes or our failures because our identity comes from God himself. So that's how in the uniqueness of Christianity, God gives sleep, gives rest to the ones he loves. I don't know if any of you, uh, you know, did any of us have what we might call performance parents, where it seemed like your, your worth or their love for you depended upon how you were succeeding in life, whether if you were getting the good grades, your parents were really happy, excited, proud of you, uh, but their love kind of was dictated by that, or whether you're succeeding in sports, whether you're, you have a good career, a good job, making enough money. And I think that's true for a lot of people. And so we, we kind of pin that on God, and we have a hard time believing that we, we can rest guilt-free because we aren't loved for what we do or what we produce. God doesn't, God's love doesn't rest on my results. So while we can work hard to create and cultivate and, and excel even at our craft, but then we can be like God himself who entered into this rhythm of work and rest. And we can rest knowing that he is the ultimate builder. He's the great architect. He's the divine watchman. But he uses us to accomplish his purposes. But it's not ultimately up to us. I, uh, you know, I love watching my kids sleep at night. Uh, creepy? I don't think so. If I love watching somebody else's kids sleep at night, like that would be a problem. Um, but it brings me so much joy to see them be able to just rest carefree, carelessly, both Grayson and Emmett. You know, Emmett's passed out in his crib. He's not worrying about how the mortgage is going to get paid. 
He's able to rest and sleep because he knows that he's taken care of. There's this one quote um, that says by Victor Hugo, he says this, And when you have laboriously accomplished your daily task, go to sleep in peace. God is awake. So some of us may be prideful and need to know that our work, one, depends on God. Some of us may be lazy or ashamed of our work and need to know that our work matters to God. But some of us may be getting our identity and our worth from work, and we need to know that our work rests in God. Worship team, you guys can come back up. Let me leave you with this scripture in Matthew 11. Jesus says this. This is his invitation. He says, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me, because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And if we're honest, has this passage ever confused any of you? Like he says, like it starts really good. Like he says he's going to give us rest, but then he offers us a yoke, a work instrument. Like how about a bed, Jesus? How about, you know, how many young parents just more than anything want a hotel room without the kids, like for one night? Yeah, it's like Taylor's dream. One day, babe. Um, One commentator uh, helpfully says this. He says, Jesus realizes that the most restful gift he can give the tired is a new way to carry life, a fresh way to bear responsibilities. Realism sees that life is a succession of burdens. We cannot get away from them. Thus, instead of offering escape, Jesus offers equipment. Jesus means that obedience to his Sermon on the Mount, his yoke, will develop in us a balance and a, quote, way of carrying life that will give more rest than the way we have been living. So to Jesus, the answer is not escapism. Because we're called to work and cultivate and create. The answer is a new way of working. A new way of carrying the realities of life. To be able to work and contribute in the world, but not destroy ourselves by anxiously toiling, whether out of lack of trust or whether out of getting our identity wrapped up in work. So it's only when we trust in the providence of God will our work truly matter. And only when we trust in the provision of God can we truly find soul-level rest. Would you pray? with me. Father, we ask that you would make this a reality in our lives. God, that we would work hard and we would excel at whatever you've called us to, that we would do it diligently unto the Lord. But at the same time, God, that our identity would rest in you, our worth would rest in you alone, that we wouldn't be obsessed with materialism or accomplishment, but that we would work hard for you and that we would trust in you. And that you would teach us to rest. That we would experience this yoke of Jesus and find rest for our souls. It's in your name we pray. Amen.